Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. It's time for another episode of Discovering the Old Testament, number 42 in our series. This time we are talking about the book of Proverbs, one of the most typical examples of biblical wisdom literature. Now, we looked at wisdom literature before when we discussed the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, That is perhaps unfortunate, because Ecclesiastes happens to be a very sharp critic of the whole wisdom genre. What we need to do this time, then, is provide some backfill to the subject in order to understand what wisdom literature is and the ideologies behind it. In ancient Israel, wisdom was the exercise of identifying those basic facts about how the world functioned. One did not compose wisdom, one discovered it. Many readers see the verse about Solomon composing thousands of proverbs without realizing that this is not really a good rendering of the original text. Instead, the idea is that Solomon had mastered those thousands of proverbs, that this is what made him so wise. But getting back to our point, God had in the beginning, according to wisdom, laid down rules that governed the world, but did not see fit to reveal them directly or all at once. Instead, it was up to the seeker after wisdom to tease out these truths and, more importantly, master them. If you were willing to put in the effort, tried to live a good life, took the appropriate attitude towards God, you would find wisdom. Proverbs also personifies wisdom, Sophia in Greek, as a female presence who occupies this odd in-between space near that of God, almost like a companion, but somehow manages to escape the prohibition against other gods or other anything that we find in earlier parts of the Bible. Proverbs goes back to about 1000 BCE, but contains a lot of material that is later in the current Old Testament corpus, so this could reflect a change in attitudes or an alternative understanding about the need for strict monotheistic dogma. Something I find very interesting about the wisdom literature is that even though it is definitely all about how to live one's life, the aphorisms and proverbs we find there are not commandments in the usual sense. They offer bits of advice, insights into the nature of the world and the people in it, and definitely advocate some behaviors over others. But the consequences for doing the wrong thing or behaving badly tend to be pretty generic. God will bless you, or not. You will prosper, or not. You will avoid trouble, or find yourself neck deep in it. But except in very general terms, we don't see specific thou shalts or thou shalt nots. The proverb itself is an interesting literary structure. Like Hebrew poetry, it usually shows up as a two-part unit called a mashal. In the Proverbs, the first half of the Mashal presents the reader with an image or situation, and the second half contains the takeaway point. The second half may be slightly obscure, and if so, great! One is supposed to wrestle with these things at least a little bit. Mastering a proverb was not intended to be automatic. 
they are often simple expressions that become highly nuanced upon deeper examination. By the way, James Kugel, in his How to Read the Bible, provides a very short but useful section on the Proverbs, and some of what follows is drawn from that. An excellent example of this is Proverbs 26, verse 9, A thorn got stuck in a drunkard's hand, and a proverb in the mouth of a fool. We can assume that the drunkard did not just decide to stick a thorn in his hand, but that it got there by accident, probably as a result of the drunkard's intoxication. Staggering about, he somehow ended up with this thing stuck in him. The fool, by contrast, somehow, we might even say accidentally, ends up with a proverb that he heard or perhaps even discovered or thinks he did, but because he is a fool, the proverb does him no good. He may throw it around, perhaps trying to appear wise, but like the thorn, all it does is hurt him. In other words, just because someone utters proverbs does not mean they understand them or have mastered them. In fact, they may do more harm than good. This is probably a good place to take a short tangent about the idea of the fool in the Old Testament. We might think that this is someone who is lacking in intelligence or foresight, a kind of cosmic doofus or screw-up. But the biblical fool is better defined as someone who knows what they are supposed to do. They are not stupid in our sense. They know the rules, but they deliberately decide to flout them and, in so doing, bring down divine retribution or the consequences of an outraged cosmic order upon their own heads to their destruction and that of everyone around them. Just to be clear, this definition seems to permeate the Old Testament generally. It is not restricted only to wisdom literature. Kugel gives another example with Proverbs 26-24, one who grabs a dog by the ears, a passerby who meddles in a dispute not his own. We have a saying about having a tiger by the tail, the implication being that if you let go, the tiger is going to turn and bite you. The other implication is that it's not very smart to grab a tiger by the tail in the first place. In the case of our proverb, we should note that dogs in the Bible are not exactly depicted as man's best friend. To grab one by the ears is to make it angry. Letting go of one ear means that uh, that pooch is likely to take a chunk out of your other hand as a result. So it is when one butts into a dispute that is not one's own. The most likely outcome is that you will have both sides in your face, ready to bite you. All that gets accomplished is expanding the scope of the dispute. However, this also points up another aspect of the Proverbs, one we see in our own body of sayings. Proverbs warns about getting involved in disputes, but also enjoins the reader to fight for the right of the downtrodden. Supposed contradictions like this should not bother us. After all, our Proverbs tell us that he who hesitates is lost, but that you must look before you leap. The very general nature of Proverbs, with their emphasis on worldly wisdom, what I have sometimes called ancient Near Eastern success literature, and the lack of usual Hebrew religious dogma might lead one to think that the Proverbs are not all that doctrinaire, or lack a particular ideology. We will see in the second half of this podcast that Proverbs draws upon sources from all over the ancient Near East, which adds to this perception. 
But the truth is that there is an ideology underlying wisdom, a very stark worldview that is anything but nuanced. The world, it claims, is divided into the righteous and the wicked. Good things happen to the righteous, bad things happen to the wicked. Do the right thing, things will work out. Do the wrong things or neglect that which is good, and you will come to a bad end. That's pretty much it. Considering that hardly anyone qualifies as all good or all bad, this is puzzling for modern readers, and, well, for ancient ones as well. Remember that both Ecclesiastes and the Book of Job hotly dispute this idea, that wisdom has the answers to life. But another view is that the appellation of righteous and wicked does not necessarily refer to people per se, but to the decisions they make. At some point in life, everyone must come down on the side of what is good or what is bad, and that there is no middle ground. This goes back to the original premise of wisdom, which is that the world functions according to a strict set of rules that were laid down in the beginning. And one of the most basic is that justice must always prevail over injustice and evil. No exceptions. Another reason why the binary nature of Proverbs ideology is easy to miss is because most modern biblical scholarship has demonstrated that the Proverbs are a lot more cosmopolitan than previously believed. For one thing, it seems that wisdom literature was part of many ancient Near Eastern literary traditions. We find what is clearly wisdom literature in Egypt and Mesopotamia both. It takes various forms fables, riddles, and, yes, proverbs. That said, while the proverb seems to be a special favorite among the Israelites, it also appears that there were a number of proverbs found outside of Israel that were just too good not to steal. What is generally regarded as a source for some biblical proverbs, or something that used a source common to both, is a text called the Wisdom of Ammon and Mopet which dates to roughly the same time period as our Proverbs. This Egyptian text, from a papyrus now housed in the British Museum, is also important because it helped clear up a scribal error in the Hebrew text that had been a problem for years. Proverbs 22.20 contained a strange word that, with a lot of mental gymnastics, could be read as three days ago, but still didn't make a whole lot of sense. However, Egyptologist Adolf Ehrman showed that a simple emendation to the word yielded 30, and worked very well as 30 sayings. He then pointed to the clear parallels with the wisdom of Amen Emope to make this case. So where Proverbs 20-20 now reads, Have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge? It reflects Amen Emope, um, chapter 30, line 539, look to these 30 chapters. They inform. They educate. Today, scholars are pretty much in agreement that these two documents share some kind of relationship, and that there is clearly some influence in play. Proverbs didn't just grab uh, Amenemope 
whole cloth and splice it in. We find bits of it in various places. There is a lot of contention even today about which text influenced which, but Ehrman, I think, makes the case by pointing out that because the text is broken up in Proverbs, but stands as a complete finished whole in Amenemope, it seems much more likely that the fragmentary nature of what is in Proverbs came about through copying and editing from another source. Another key is the discovery of some of the text of Amenemope on an ostracon that dates reliably to the 21st dynasty, placing it well before the earliest dates possible for Proverbs, making it most likely an ancestor text. Here are some other places where Amenemope and Proverbs mirror each other. Where Amenemope, um, chapter 1 says, Give your ear and hear what is said. Give your heart to understand it. Putting them in your heart is worthwhile. Proverbs 22, 17-18 reads, Bend your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be a delight if you guard them within you. Uh, Amenemope 6, Better is bread when the heart is happy than riches with sorrow. Proverbs 15.16 Better is little with fear of the Lord than great wealth and trouble along with it. Amenemope chapter 18 One thing are the words said by men, another thing is what God does. Proverbs 19.21 The plans in the mind of a man are many, but it is God's purpose that will prevail. Uh, and finally, uh, Amenemope chapter 2, Beware of robbing the poor and oppressing the afflicted. Proverbs 22.22, Rob not the poor, for he is poor, neither oppress or crush the lowly in the gate. As we said, there are other bodies of wisdom literature in general, and Proverbs in particular. The great Assyrian library of Assurbanipal contained a number of wisdom texts, including collections of Proverbs. These do not show the same level of affinity with Proverbs that we find in Amenemope, but they are interesting all the same. Uh, we have a few here translated by George Barton, published in 1920. Some of these are, frankly, more than a little odd, and seem to have lost, or gained, something in the translation. The following are some of the less inscrutable examples. 1. A hostile act you shall not perform, that fear of vengeance shall not consume you. 2. You shall not do evil, that life eternal you may obtain. 3. Does a woman conceive when a virgin, or grow great without eating? Not quite sure what that one's about, but there it is. 4. If I put anything down, it is snatched away. If I do more than is expected, who will repay me? 5. He has dug a well where no water is. He has raised a husk without kernel. Uh, number 6. Does a marsh receive the price of its reeds, or the fields the price of their vegetation? This almost sounds like uh, the lilies of the field uh, to me. Uh, number seven, the strong live by their own wages, the weak by the wages of their children. Eight, his ass I am, I am harnessed to a mule, a wagon I draw to seek reeds and fodder I go forth. This kind of sounds a little bit like I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. 
Number nine, the tall grain thrives, but what do we understand of it? The meager grain thrives, but what do we understand of it? Number ten, if you go and take the field of an enemy, the enemy will come and take your field. And finally, number eleven, upon a glad heart, oil is poured out, of which no one knows. As we mentioned before, there is a cosmopolitan sense to the Proverbs, not only because of the discovery of cognate documents and literary examples in other contemporary civilizations. Uh, however, in spite of the all-or-nothing ideology that informs Proverbs, we also notice that the world is no longer divided into Israelites and non-Israelites, worshippers of God versus pagans, etc., it boils down to good and evil, which makes no distinction based on hereditary spiritual lineage. The implication here is a bit shocking. Anyone can do good. Anyone can be evil. It all boils down to whether one is wise enough to grasp how the world works and use that knowledge to live a good life. Recall that the book of Job goes to great lengths to show that Job is not only a worthy man, on par with the greatest holy figures of Hebrew scripture, he is clearly, explicitly, not Jewish, and neither are his friends, despite their clear grounding in Jewish religion and wisdom traditions. It should not surprise us, then, that the book of Isaiah shows a lot of influence from the wisdom tradition, particularly since Isaiah is one of the clearest and earliest voices claiming that while the house of Israel is still open for special divine favor in rescuing of a surviving remnant, he also unmistakably expressed a far more inclusive view of the relationship between God and the Gentile nations, even to the point that those nations could realize the same blessings and privileges as the Israelites. It is also refreshing, perhaps, in a time like ours, when some of religion's loudest voices openly revile and mock the very notion of intellectual activity and learning. Perhaps it's most appropriate, then, to close with this admonition from Proverbs chapter 4. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.